The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Let's move on and uh, let me welcome uh, Claire Hatton from the University of uh, Loughborough. I've known Claire through, I suppose to borrow Franco Morazzi's term, distant reading for a very long time uh, as one of the premier, if not the premier, book historian of, uh, of Irish writing. And, uh, she's one of the editors of the monumental Oxford history of the Irish book, which has been such a, a superb resource for all of us who work in Irish literary history through the 18th right the way up to the present. Um, I'm pleased to say as well that, Claire, this is a, not a welcome, but a welcome back, because, of course, you took the MPhil in Anglo-Irish Literature, as it was then called, uh, some time ago. Um, so we might kick off with that. How does it feel to come back? What's changed? What's remained the same? There's a question. Um, so... Um, I was a student here, um, and it is extremely nice to be back. I was a student here in 1992 to 1993, so that is actually 27 years ago. Um, it was an amazingly intense year. Um, I did a, my first degree in London, and it was a very traditional English degree. Um, absolutely, even though I did it in the late 80s, early 90s, the syllabus had not changed from the one that my aunt had done 30 years earlier. So it was absolutely straightforward, Beowulf to Virginia Woolf. And the only women we did were Virginia Woolf, George Eliot, and actually I didn't read any prose. Um, apart from Ulysses, I just did lyric poetry um, because I decided that you know the novel was to be bypassed given the time constraints. So there's a sort of arrogance there. Beowulf to Virginia Woolf, I got here and it was really the same thing with an Irish inflection. It was swift to Beckett at speed, at kind of postgraduate speed. And I absolutely loved it. I mean, although you could pick holes in it now, and um, at the time, it was really kind of seriously formative. And I was actually quite hesitant about whether or not I was going to commit to being somebody who really worked on Irish literature. And by the time I left this place, I very much wanted to continue in Irish literature and actually kind of thought, and it's amazing, the arrogance of youth, but I kind of left here thinking, I really want to write an original book on Yeats and an original book on Joyce. So that is really the TCD formation. And somehow, and weirdly, I have never abandoned those aspirations. And I've just finished my book on Joyce. The Yeats one is a slightly more problematic thing, but we'll come back to that. Okay, that's good to hear, and I know there are people in the room uh, who have their own experience of our uh, Irish writing and film, as it's now called, including myself, uh, and uh, Sam Slotus with us, uh, who's the current director. Um, and that sense of an evolution in uh, Irish uh, studies is something we might have time to come back to, but tell us a bit more about your, let's say, is it a love-hate relationship with Joyce and with Ulysses? Uh, tell us about, you spoke a little bit about yesterday working on 
um, the textual changes of the different editions of Ulysses. But uh, tell us a bit more about the book you just uh, finished, because this is very much a publishing history, uh, contextual study, the literal review. Yeah, I wouldn't describe myself as an absolutely only just a book historian. I've always seen book history very much as a sort of um, tool within literary criticism and literary scholarship. So I, I, I used book history really as a way into the question of how to interpret, how to come up with an original reading of Ulysses. I mean, that's got to be a kind of rather dramatic um, critical challenge. You know, what can I say about this book that other people haven't said? What kind of context can I delve into? And I, I used to do this um, slightly mad seminar in London, the Charles Peake Ulysses Seminar, which meets in Russell Square in London on Friday nights from 6 till 8. I think it's the first Friday of the month. And it's got a kind of record for being the world's slowest close reading group. It's in some sort of Oxford history of reading for being the, the only reading group that has never actually finished the book that they're setting out to read. And so they meet and they do about half a page of really you know, detailed annotation and reading. And so in a way that's, that's kind of where I set my store as a joycean was like how much of this slow, careful, annotative, historicist work could you do? So I, I kind of knew what they were doing, and in a sense that kind of gave me a template for... Um, but So although I'd been doing that for decades, I didn't actually know that Ulysses had existed in serial form. So I wrote a funding application. It was one of the quick ones that you can do. In other words, I only had to write a thousand words of you know spinning prose about what research I was going to do. And, the National Library of Ireland had just acquired the new manuscripts and I had just finished the Oxford History of the Irish book and so I thought, oh well there's a chance there, I'll do something on the textuality of Ulysses. And I, I really knew nothing about the textuality of Ulysses, it was quite a speculative application. But it must have had something in it, because the, or, or clearly the people who reviewed it said, um, well, yes, there is this new manuscript material and there weren't people particularly working on it. Now I know there were, but I didn't at the time know that there were. So I just sort of thought, well, let's see if I can do something relating to textuality. Um, and started, met uh, Luca Crispy and Sam, um, and in a way then realised that actually there was a huge field of genetic choice studies. And I, the question was whether I was going to work on manuscripts or and once I realised that the serial text existed, I realised that there was a book there and cut out manuscripts from the work completely. So I was only interested in the kind of first printed iterations of the text, in other words, the, the Little Review text and the Ulysses of 1922. And what's the critical um, and you know, hermeneutic significance of the fact that the thing exists in two separate versions? So that's what the book does. It's fairly simple in its structure, really. It's about the context in which the Little Review was published in the US between 1918 and 1920. So that's its own micro-history of periodical studies, in a way. And then, OK, so moving forward, what's the significance of the way in which Joyce changes the text um, between the serial version and 1922? And that is not an easy question to get at. Um, 
But as I was trying to say yesterday, digital resources have really transformed the potential for that kind of work. So I ended up kind of drifting a little bit from book history to digital humanities whilst I was writing the book. I mean, the book took 10 years. I wasn't always working on it. But, you know, it did take quite a long time to kind of get it together, um, because partly because the, the methodology was complicated. Um, what do you think, looking back at now, what do you think you really wanted to achieve with this approach? Because obviously, the devotion to the text of Ulysses and its various formations and versions uh, has created its own large community of anoraks um, and devotees. But of course, you're illuminating at the same time another community, which is the publishing community. And, and the platforms such as the Little Review. I know we might revisit this when we look at your, your current work uh, on Joyce's uh, publishers. But do you think this was a book that changed in the course of writing um, and had a, another agenda? Yeah, it has many agendas, really. I mean, I suppose um, in some ways, partly because of the circumstances in which I wrote it, I had to get the book finished, and I didn't publish the articles along the way. Um, there are quite a few um, much more interpretive articles that I could have written that I kind of left by the wayside because I was determined to get the book finished for REF, you know, the research exercise framework that is so significant in the British um, context. And so um, I feel as though there's kind of quite a lot of... Um, perhaps slightly underexploited interpretive stuff going on in the book, which has kind of been shoved a little bit into the kind of footnotes, which I will go back to. Though one of my colleagues has just told me that, well, you can't publish outtakes now that you've got the book. So maybe, so, I mean, but in a way there's a sense that, that there's a sort of a bottom drawer there. But I mean, the kind of thing I did yesterday when I was talking about like the significance of the way Joyce changes chapter two of Ulysses, that I think ought to be something which in mainstream literary scholarship is a more acknowledged fact. So that's, that's probably the biggest yeah. agenda. Yeah. I mean, and, and I suppose slightly, in a slightly cavalier way, one of the big ideas in the book is... Um, I argue that Joyce's revisionary habit is essentially patterned. So there's a theory in the book, um, which I don't fully believe, but nonetheless kind of stuck with, a bit like Stephen. Um, it's called Seven Types of Ulyssian Revision. Mm. And it is sort of a bit like saying, well, look, there, there's only so many things going on here and we can get to them. Um, and I suppose the big, big argument there is that in response to Ulysses being censored um, and, you know, the, the cessation of the little review because of the obscenity charge against Chapter 13, Nausicaa, Joyce actually made the text more sexually explicit. Mm. Um, now, I can't believe I'm the first person to have made that argument, but I it doesn't seem as though it's a very well-reckoned argument. You know? So in other words, there's sort of socially motivated revision going on mm. in the text. Mm. And certainly the, the evidence of Joyce changing the text yeah, in a responsive way, I think, is, quite, is, is an important fact, really, to, to be kind of reckoned with. And it, it raises all kinds of attendant questions for people working in 
the modernist field in particular about, you know, the people who read the little review version um, and then, of course, never bothered to read any more after that, or what difference did that make? You know, the sense of the, the, the book's influence disguises what the little review did, perhaps, in terms of disseminating a particular version of Ulysses. Yeah, and we have quite a good record of who read the little review. Yeah. Um, including, obviously, um, the reader critic column where people are writing in to say what they think of Ulysses as it's being published. And Joyce seems to be quite aware of that. Um, at least I argue that he's aware of that. Mm. So, um, yeah, I think the little review is formative for, Joyce, for, for, for Joyce's reception in some quarters. Um, certainly amongst a kind of um, elite writerly um, coterie. Um, I mean, exactly. Sylvia Beach, for example, is a reader of the Little Review. Yeah. So the first publisher, yeah, she's yeah. American, and she she knows Joyce through the Little Review. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think you know, obviously figures such as Wyndham Lewis and so on. That mm. that chain of influence is very much about that version of it. Mm. Uh, so it's it's a fascinating archaeology yeah. to have to plough through. I know we're going to come back to Ulysses uh, a little bit later on when we open up the conversation, but I want to pick up on, um, it wasn't quite a grimace when you mentioned the ref, uh, but obviously you're working in Loughborough in the context of a still just about United Kingdom. Uh, and it's very interesting, I think, for those of us working in Ireland or in other universities in Europe, some of us with connections to the US, to Asia, it's very interesting to hear from scholars who are working in different environments with different kinds of mm. pressure. And you're very aware, I think, of the particular climate at the moment mm. in the UK, third-level uh, sector, and with the study of English in particular as a discipline. Mm. You don't look filled with confidence, Claire, at this point. <laughs> no, um, I feel as though the last... 10 years of really, you know, I, I'm kind of stuck with my agenda of, you know, trying to write these original books in Irish literature. Mm. And yet I can feel um, quite dramatic changes. Um, so I think I saw some figures recently which said that undergraduate English in Britain since 2016 has collapsed by another 20%. So it's already going down. So fees came in. So every undergraduate who does a degree, regardless of subject, pays a fee of 9,250. And then they borrow their maintenance as well. So it costs almost 15,000 pounds a year to do a three-year degree. And interest is charged at 6.7% from day one. So by the time most undergraduates finish, they are carrying a debt of 50,000 pounds, regardless of subject. And since that happened in 2012, what we've seen is a really dramatic restructure in the management of universities and um, who's doing what subject and where. So I would describe English as a sort of cottage industry subject where all the cottages were about the same size. You know, there was, there's Leeds, there's Manchester, there's Birmingham, there's whatever. And now what you've got is a kind of warehouses, and then you've got some cottages, of which Loughborough is one, which are seriously in decline. Yeah. So before 2012, Loughborough was not doing a great deal to pull in our undergraduates. They just turned up. We didn't have marketing. Yeah. We didn't have league tables in quite the way that we do now. 
and we didn't have the National Student Survey. We, you know, it, it was just a totally different kind of environment. And we also had a thing called number control, which meant that universities couldn't grow because of a kind of government um, regulation. They couldn't grow beyond a certain percentage. So they were quite tightly controlled. And so you couldn't have one university aiming to become bigger and bigger and bigger, whilst others got smaller and smaller. Now, Loughborough's managed to keep up its numbers, but not in English. Mm. So, um, so we were having about 150 students a year, which is a good number for a cottage, <laughs> you know, but um, now we're down to about 50 single honours. So, um, and that's, at the same time, our neighbouring departments have grown um, because they were humanity, they had greater humanity strength to begin with. And so what you've seen is our immediate neighbours, so that they would be Nottingham, Birmingham and Warwick. They're all about kind of 50 miles from us. They've all got really significant humanities strength and what they've done is they've gone fishing for humanities students. So they're making um, unconditional offers to get students to go to those places. And Loughborough has kind of held its head high and said, no, we won't do that. And as a result, we don't have, you know, the, the students just come look at the campus, say it's nice, are you making unconditional offers? And we say no, and then they say, right, well, I'll go to Birmingham. And meanwhile, so I've got colleagues in Birmingham where they literally, you know, the first year lecture on King Lear will have 350 students in it. So it's a dramatically different student experience. So the, the career implications of this are quite big. Um, and um, I mean, you, I can feel very strongly that you know the government is absolutely pushing STEM so science technology engineering medicine and maths um, and that is actually that's a very grassroots thing I have two teenage daughters and you know you can see them being targeted to do those subjects like you know come to the physics lab you're yeah. 11 you know and you like my daughter's just been invited off to a maths master class um, and you know there they are there's like rows and rows of 13-year-old girls being told very directly, you must. And so that's having quite an impact on, on humanities as well. Traditionally quite female subjects, so, yeah. But we feel your pain uh, in Trinity, definitely, um, in terms of our own undergraduates. But I'm also thinking about how this might make you view a community such as this in the hub of postgraduate, postdoctoral researchers in arts, humanities, Doran and obviously social sciences um, and the constant push that I think many people will be feeling for relevance, applicability, mm -hmm. uh, some kind of transferable um, use of the arts humanities so that it ties up with uh, possibly a government agenda, possibly uh, an industry agenda. This is the new climate that certainly I think we're all thinking about. Um, have you any Optimism? Have you any suggestions? Have you any well, I have a lot of optimism about being here and, and actually just seeing doctoral students who are so kind of vibrant and engaged. And I've never seen so many, not recently, um, seen quite so many. So that's fantastically renewing. Um, I suppose I think the number of academic jobs in Ireland is small. And so a lot of Irish academics do end up working, you know, in the UK or the US or going into you know, alternative careers of some kind. So I worry a bit about the, the implications of where this might actually lead. As you say, impact and trying to do some sort of work in 
you know, which fits with government or industrial agendas, that's obviously quite important. Mm. And I'm not immune to it myself, you know, because you kind of can't not be. Yeah. You have to have to engage. Yeah. Um, exactly. Um, and one of the one of the obviously one of the ways your own research has gone, the direction it's currently moving in, is perhaps into a territory that's seen as being applicable, relevant, um, that crosses uh, uh, boundaries with, with the social sciences, yeah. with economics, and that's the way you've you've moved into the digital humanities project, where you're currently looking at the digital digital humanities. I suppose a bit like with book history, it's not what you've become but it's a handmaiden, for want of a better word, to what you want to do. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about the project that you're currently moving towards. So um, this is a completely new piece of research, and you've got the title, which has um, just literally in the last few days changed, so literally history since Web 2. And Web 2 um, meaning roughly since about 2004, so it's quite a short period, because we're only you know, 16 years um, and around then, um, you know, there was a huge conference which designated the web Web 2. The first generation of the web is not that, uh, you know, I mean, it's important, but it's not quite so interesting. It's not quite so interactive from a cultural perspective. Um, and so what you get around then is things like Twitter is 2006, 2005 the, um, is the first um, YouTube first begins to operate in 2005. Smartphone is invented in 2007, the first Apple smartphone. So, I mean, the, the argument, the implicit argument in sort of saying since Web 2 is that those things um, have a, a speeding up effect. They're kind of catalysts for social interaction and for a kind of, kind of rapid cultural engagement, including engagement of a literary community, which have not perhaps engaged quite so much before that. Um, and the question really, and it's a sort of fat research question, is what are the historical um, or methodological impacts of these changes for, let's say, the writing, not, not just for literary culture, and for the writing specifically of literary history? Um, so sooner or later, we're going to have to kind of roll up our sleeves and get to grips with how to mine Twitter, for example. And I... I've done a little bit of that myself in recent work. The article I've just published on Milkman used Twitter um, as a resource, um, and I really enjoyed doing it, but I, I was doing it kind of just in the immediate wake of the uh, Booker Award. So I was able to find the stuff and use it immediately. I, um, my um, uh, collaborator on this project um, is uh, James O'Sullivan from Cork, and he just said to me, yes, as soon as something, as soon as you want to go back a bit further than six weeks within Twitter, you're in trouble. It's really hard to do and you basically have to pay. And I suppose the point is that Twitter, um, conventionally you'd think of it as ephemeral, mm. but it's actually in a, in a way um, quite important social commentary being layered down there. And we can't afford to ignore stuff of that kind, which looks ephemeral. And the same, I mean, the same argument applies to, you know, blogs, vlogs, and so on. So it's quite a big and ambitious canvas, but a fairly tight historical period. I know, I know this will be a, a really interesting to a lot of people here who, um, for a start, use social media uh, in a way that I don't. But... Um, I'm sure that will come up in the conversation, but 
how are you going to manage the, the hierarchy between literary criticism proper and then what happens in the Twitter sphere and your mining of that material? Is there still a distinction? No, I don't think there is, really. Um, so I, the short answer is I have no idea because the research is at such a kind of preliminary stage. It's just literally framing questions, um, hopefully plausible questions, which will then extract the funding, um, which will then make the thing a possible project. Um, I mean, there are certainly there is some quite good research being done on this already, and um, particularly social scientists. Yes, yeah. Um, I mean, but what I would be doing with this, I suppose, would be looking at it with a fairly almost like old-fashioned literary historical eyes. So um, what is the significance of the fact that you've got major authors tweeting? And how can we preserve, record, and use those tweets? So, I mean, I've done my... My recent teaching has been around the Booker Prize. Mm -hmm. So I've, I follow anybody who's been associated with the Booker Prize, and I do notice their tweets. And I'm quite interested in what they, what they have to say. Um, how they use their kind of that platform. Um, so, but I, I don't quite know what the um, answers will be. Yeah. I think the more important thing is to get at the methodology. So, for literary scholars, you know, I think most literary scholars, me included, I wouldn't really know what data mining is, mm. or topic modeling, or uh, stylometric analysis, or um, network analysis. I mean, I can guess, but. And I sort of think there's a bit of a kind of standoff between DH and literary scholarship. And in a way, what this project is going to try to do is to sort of bring about some yeah, yeah. Um, truce. Yes. Yes. And, and that relationship, obviously, it's, it's not an easy one to manage. You know, the idea is you have a good topic and then you can find someone who can work a computer to do the modelling, to do all the technical stuff for you, which is something you're trying to push beyond, I suspect, in this. Yeah, I mean, I definitely want to learn some new tricks yeah. myself, yeah. you know, because I kind of know that there's... I, I know that what tricks you can learn will have some sort of hermeneutic kind of heft and heavy lifting, and that's what you want. You want the, you want the, the lever. Um, does that make sense? Absolutely. I, I wish you the best of luck. Uh, I'm watching with great interest. I'm going to ask you to touch briefly on um, one of the fascinating projects you've got scheduled uh, for the near future, and now I'm going to uh, ask people for their, uh, their input, but coming back to Joyce again, but a slightly different route to Ulysses. We're very aware that 1922 is looming as our next big literary anniversary, I suppose, of course, for Virginia Woolf's Jacob's Room, um, for, for Ulysses, and, and you are planning to work on um, a way to looking at Ulysses through the community of women who were involved with the publishing of this text. Absolutely fascinating. I know group biographies, particularly of women, uh, are doing very well at the moment, but this is a very novel approach, I think. Yeah, hence the photograph, um, which is, um, I don't know if anyone can see it, but sorry, it's a bit blurry. I took it on my iPhone. Um, but it's, um, it's Sylvia Beach um, and her partner, Adrian Monnier, in the Rue de Lodion in Shakespeare and Company. Um, I don't know when it was taken. Um, that's not very good Irish history, is it? But there's Joyce. I mean, I quite like the um, photographs of all the men. Um, there's its own literary history. Um, I think in the original you can see who... I mean, I can certainly see 
um, H.G. Wells, D.H. Lawrence, um, Yeats, um, obviously Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's kind of an interesting photograph because it's staged. It's, it's trying to record the conversation for posterity. Um, so, uh, which actually is kind of typical of Beach. She, she had a real eye to literary history mm. in a lot of her um, manoeuvres. Um, but they're sort of positioning themselves as the women who are um, the kind of textual handmaidens of Joyce's genius. Yeah. That's, and that's part of what I want to get at. And that's part of the staging, you suggest. Yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, actually, I think they have quite interesting intellectual agency on their own part, and that's something I'd want to recover. So, I mean, I've got... Groups of women associated with the book trade. So Harriet Shaw Weaver, Joyce's patron. Um, that chapter I, is the one I want to get straight into. It's called Finding Miss Weaver. And it's about the evolution of Joyce's relationship with Weaver um, from 1917, uh, when they first begin to correspond. So actually, it might be 1916 when they first correspond. But, um, you know, she starts to give Joyce astonishing sums of money to begin with, anonymously. Some of the references to the cash in the letters have been excised and at her request by Elman. Mm. So, in fact, you have to go back to the original letters to find out quite how much money was kind of passing hands and who, who said what in response. You know, dear Mr Joyce, I enclosed a cheque for £5,000 and that will be just left out. Mm. You know, and then was, the letter will actually start, you know, hope you and your family are keeping well and you think... Oh, the, the really crucial detail of the £5,000 is being left out. So, and there's a sort of really interesting kind of financial history. Um, but also, I mean, why... I mean, she is an extremely hard nut to crack because what's the psychological motivation behind Weaver's generosity? How much of a genius does she really think Joyce is? Why does she continue to support Joyce quite as much as she does? Mm. I mean, I think there are some answers, but I don't think they're particularly easy, and I think they're quite speculative, mm. Mm -hmm. you know. And I also think they're quite interpretive. I've just read someone else's work on Weaver, and I completely disagree with it. Um, you know, and I thought, oh, gosh, you know, really? Could you read the same evidence and come up with those views? Excellent. I mean, I was really I surprised. Find, I find so, that's what so, you know, the other one, other women, and Little Review, Anderson and Heap, I know quite well, and Beach. So in some ways what I'm doing is taking some of the archival work from the um, academic book and repurposing it for a trade book. Mm -hmm. um, so it'll be a, a readable account that yes, that's tells the a story as much yes, as... Yes, it's, uh, it's slightly more, yeah. Excellent. And then I want to bring in some family people. Um, Joyce's mother, I think, is absolutely fascinating. I'm not sure how many people have really tried to write an account of May Joyce. Um, but I do think her... Um, she's formative in interesting ways. You know, her, her death kind of propels him, I think. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and then... So she's in there as well, obviously. So, yeah, and Nora. Yeah. So, I mean, it'll be mixed in its method. Um, so that it won't all be um, book history women. Because I think that would be a bit... I think it needs to be leavened a bit by the the personal circumstances and the discussion a bit of what's going on in the domestic sphere. And I do think that um, the women in the domestic sphere all facilitate Joyce in different ways and important ways. So um, and, and I'm just going to have to sit down and write. Yes. A message to us all. Um, <laughs> on that note, let me, let me see if there are a couple of people who want to... Uh, to 
comment or any questions for Claire. Uh, as usual, we have to have the roving mic to the law. Thank you so much for this um, conversation. And I was so intrigued that you said Joyce was responding to some critical readers writing into the law review. And then you also said that you follow some of the Booker Prize authors on Twitter. And I wonder, relating to your current project, do you see important or recognized contemporary authors responding to their tweeters in a similar way? whether in revisions or new writing? Um, so authorial response and reaction to readers. Yes, I think, that, I think there's quite a lot of um, authors being acutely aware of the position of their readers in a way that wasn't possible in Joyce's era. Joyce is an unusual case, having the reader critic column in the little review. It does give him something to go on. I would say that like The Testaments by Margaret Atwood is a, very much a response to readers, that she becomes aware of like a young adult readership, which has kind of be, emerged partly through the Netflix of Handmaid's Tale. And she's very, very responsive in the digital sphere. Um, she's a, one of the world's you know, foremost authorial tweeters. Um, she just turned 80. Um, and, you know, I think the Testaments is um, Atwood trying to engage a young adult authorship, you know, and does so, I think, quite successfully. It's a very fluent book, but it's almost like for that kind of Harry Potter generation grown up. Mm -hmm. And it, it works very well, but you, you can't think of it in, it's not in the same sphere or authorial mode as Handmaid's Tale, despite being the sequel which is mad, but kind of fascinating. So I suppose I'm coming at that very much as a book historian, but also a literary scholar. You know, I loved it, but all my colleagues sneered at the Testaments. I don't know if anyone's read it, but, I, you know, I, I, I thought it was gripping. Hats off, you know. But a kind of Potter-esque fluency. Which, and that shows up on Twitter, that, that shift to a different readership. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, is there another... Mentor. Yeah, so we've got uh, Connor, Connor at the front. Hi, thanks so much, Claire. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about um, the role you think the digital humanities can play in relation to the challenges you, challenges you saw that uh, English studies faces in both Britain Ireland, in terms of students dropping off. And do you think the digital humanities can play a, a kind of bridging role or a role to maybe um, make these um, teaching environments more dynamic? And perhaps, uh, I'm really not sure um, whether, um, I'm really, really uncertain. I wanted DH to help rescue English. I quite like traditional English. And I can see the kind of hermeneutic potential of DH to do things for English as a traditional discipline. But I'm still not sure it will really help. I, I actually, I mean, one of the most interesting things I've done recently is teaching the booker and forcing my students to read this year's list, and not forcing them, actually finding that they wanted to do that anyway. And then the really weird reverse can can canonicity, so like Duck's Newburyport, which is by Lucy Elman, obviously it says on the very front of it, Ulysses has nothing on this. My students don't know that I'm a Joyce scholar. And some of them came to me and said, do you know, this is really like Molly Bloom. And you can say, I'm sure, actually, you're right. And kind of like, so there's a weird kind of thing going on. 
And there was another um, book, let me think of the title. Um, gosh, I've just read it and I've forgotten. Um, it's a rewrite of Under Milkwood. And the students went off and read Under Milkwood because of it. Um, Lanny by Max Porter. So that, that kind of introduced the contemporary and the canon comes into focus. That's like, who would have thought that could happen? But it has happened in my experience. Yeah. And students who read the Testament say, I'm actually going to go off and read 1984. Mm. So, uh, like, in some ways, I've given up trying to kind of force feed the canon because actually, uh, by, by insisting on the contemporary, the work is kind of happening. I, obviously, I believe in, you know, teaching a kind of canon still, yeah. but um, I think it's quite hard. Yeah. In an age of reading in an age of digital distraction, it's quite difficult. Mm. The sort of sustained work that you need to do, it's really hard. Yeah. So you would be potentially more positive then, or would you be sceptical in, in terms About of whether or not English can flourish, I think it depends entirely on kind of, you know, higher education politics. Mm. And like, I mean, I'm not sure I would have done an English degree if I'd had to incur the debt that yeah, today's right. generations are mm. sort of, you know, like, I can see that that's quite, a, I think I would have done psychology or something else, you know. Um, because and yet we see subjects, I mean, you know, I'm always amazed listening, some of you are here, you know, the number of people doing PhDs in classics. Yes, here fantastic. In, you know, how is that having this healthy resurgence? Um, you know, there are, sorry, not my turn, I've no mic, but uh, I think you're opening up a lot of really interesting mm. questions about how subjects are raised and then lowered in profile and uh, not always just economic. Torsten. My comment is also about the digital humanities and I kind of don't understand how you differentiate digital humanities from English or other language related um, <coughs> disciplines just because like some of the most important um, tools that have been developed in digital humanities come out of initiatives that have been there before digital humanities existed, yeah. like the text encoding initiative or stylometry. The, both of those things are much older, and there you can see that the idea is developed in a like in a field like English or uh, a field yeah, concerned with a different language, and then like uh, this apparently brings people to. I think that's. Also, where I disagree with Eve, that we we can have someone who then puts our ideas into the computer. If I understood you, it, this is our perception. Yeah. I'm not saying that that's what that um, that you know, like we basically need to be then that those translators ourselves need to learn, basically have one leg in each discipline, and then make this go forward. And I think that like especially stylometry had this this uh, moment of. Um, of fame when uh, this method was used to discover who um, Elena Ferrante really is. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, it's a paparazzi kind of thing, but I think that there might be also ways where it gets more, like where you can get people who don't think that their interest is first of all in English from a different perspective, and then you also get, but you also have to get those people that come with an interest in the language to look at this other way of looking at language. Yes, thank you. No, I, 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 I think, well... <laughs> so, I mean, in terms of the subjects that people pursue at university, I would be very plural. 
I like the fact, I mean, one of the things that's nice about being in Trinity is remembering that, you know, that people do more than one subject. And there's a sort of fluidity in the structure. And, um, you know, I work in a structure where there's an awful lot of emphasis on single honours and on narrowing. So people do three subjects at A-level and one subject for their degree. And I think that's too narrow. I, I, and I, would like, I like the fact that people can kind of chop and change. So we get students who start at Loughborough to do business studies because their parents have forced them to do that. They realise they hate business studies, so they turn up you know, about eight weeks into term and say, I want to do English. And the first thing we do is say, we're going to charge you another year's fees and come back in October which is ridiculous. We don't just open the door and say, you can come. Mm. You know, that's not my, you know, I would, I would always keep the door to the English department open and allow people to kind of mix and match, you know, but that's not the structure I'm currently working in, sadly. You know, um, we are, maybe things will, will liberalise a bit and we'll go for a liberal arts type education, but actually that's not part of the kind of national education tradition either. I know it exists very successfully in um, North America, but not, it's really not, you know, the A-levels need to be changed as well. So, you know, there's quite a lot of major structural change that needs to happen. Digital humanities as a term, I think, is a kind of term of convenience. I don't know how much strong intellectual glue it's really got. I mean, I, I use it, but I'm still a little bit, you know, like we had other words for it which were more modest. Humanities confusion, you know, which, and, and obviously, yes, a lot of the methodologies existed before DH became the term. Um, so, you know, I mean, I th and I think it's useful, but I do think the humanities people need to pick up and use these techniques for themselves for their own research if they want to. But again, I wouldn't force that. You know, people who don't want to learn how to, I don't know, data mine the literary present, well, fine. There are plenty of ways of, say, reading the contemporary or reading literary texts. It doesn't have to be digital in any sense, or even book historical. People can kind of choose their own, you know, free to choose whichever method they, they want. <clears throat> the time for one more. We're supposed to be wrapping up, but is there another... Uh, Jack, yeah, that's really hand up. Sorry, Jan, on this question, because it's kind of facetious. When you were talking about <laughs> authors tweeting, I was thinking that the main question when you think about authors tweeting is how do you get them to stop? Um, and on that note, who do you think of the people you've studied, like Joyce or Yates uh, or whoever else, would have been the worst and most insufferable on Twitter? <laughs> Yates, hands down, it's got to be Yates, sure. Well, both Yates and Joyce could have become tweeters, I think, in veteran, you know, like, um, but probably tweeters in quite a different medium. I mean, I suppose Joyce probably would have been tweeting about, you know, the material discomforts of his life, you know, or, you know <laughs> sending people sort of, you know, tweets to say, you know, can you send us a few quid or, you know, um, we could do with another bottle of wine over here, that kind of thing. Um, Yates, I suppose, would have been political um, and, you know, creating his own little network. I mean, so... I mean, that's a facetious answer, but there's a bit of truth in it. Are you working on a Yates stroke Joyce emoji <laughs> as we speak? <laughs> <laughs> Good, one productive outcome from, uh, from Claire's visit in that regard. We're, we're going to wrap up at this point, but thank you all very much for coming. Claire, I'm, I'm just sorry you're here for such a short time. 
But we hope you're going to be back and sooner than 1922, if not then 19, uh, sorry, 2022, <laughs> I live in the past, uh, for, for the various Ulysses-related celebrations that we'll be having in that year. But thank you very much for sharing this thank with us. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The hub is about impact. The hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years.